song just fires me up every single time. Your forgiveness, it is, it is so sweet, it is so excellent, it is so uh, refreshing in all the best of ways. God, uh, we thank you for that grace, we thank you for that forgiveness. And God, as we, as we go to this passage this morning, God, would you open our minds and soften our hearts to receive the truth that you have. God, that we have been made alive in Christ, that we have received everything that we need for life in Christ, and we have received everything that we need in death in Christ. God, help us to see that reality and help us to see how that moves and changes everything in our life. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you have a seat, please? So I, I heard about a guy which maybe many of you have heard about in the past, Nick Vojacech, I'm probably ruining his last name. Nick Vojacech, he's a uh, best-selling author. He's sold millions of books. He has spoken to tens of thousands of people, upwards of 100,000 people at once all over the world. He is an incredible evangelist for the gospel, has led many, many people to Christ in nations all over the world. He, he is a motivational speaker beyond just Christian events. Uh, he, he speaks and preaches hope and grace and forgiveness uh, for the sake of the gospel everywhere. This guy is, is incredibly powerful. Uh, not sure how many of you are familiar with him or not. The thing that's, that's so incredible about Nick is that uh, he does all of this and has accomplished all of this with what many of us might call a disability. In fact, he was born with no arms and no legs. No arms and no legs, and yet he's gone, gone on to do all of these incredible things for the gospel. And my argument this morning as to why, like, why is he not just depressed? Why, why is he not, even as a Christian, let's say that he's, he's a Christian, we acknowledge that the, the grace of God, the gift of God comes into his life, he, he puts his faith in Jesus, he becomes a Christian, why is he not just waiting for the clock to run out? Right? Why is he not just waiting for the new heaven, the new earth, when, when all will be made new, when, when his body will be perfected? Why is he doing so much and finding such incredible joy right now in this life? And my argument uh, as to the answer of that question is that he understands what it is to be in Christ. Paul has said this now many times since the beginning of Ephesians. We've touched on it briefly, but I want to focus on this idea this morning that, that those who place their faith in Jesus are in Christ. That's different and unique from anything else we might be in our lives. That's something that Christianity offers that nothing else offers. Jesus says, uh, the same thing, in fact, in, in uh, the Bible, I think I'm getting ahead of myself here, but in, in the Bible there's some 216 times that, uh, that we're told we are in Christ or some variation of that phrase. This is super important, super significant. Why, why would the Bible repeat this 216 times? Why does Paul repeat this, I don't even know, a couple dozen times from the beginning of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2 here, why does he repeat this over and over and over? Because one, we need to know it. This is critical, crucial that we understand what it means to be in Christ and that that is the reality in which we find ourselves. And number two, we're prone to forget it, right? That's the other reason you repeat yourself. We are prone to forget this and, and in fact, 
uh, I mean, this began, we can jump back to, to Genesis 3 with the original sin, right? In God, Adam and Eve had everything. In the garden, walking with God in the cool of the day, they had everything they could ever possibly want for all joy and freedom and, and, and uh, you know, enjoyment of life. And what do they do? The serpent comes along, tells them, whispers to them a lie that you can be like God. Another way we might put this is, is to say you, you can be in yourself. You can know good and evil. You can determine what is right and wrong for yourself. You can be in Adam, or it might be phrased to me, you can be in Brian. This is a lie we are still believing. Adam and Eve believed it, and it ruined everything, everything, right? That's, that's what it is to be in Adam or in your own name. This is different than what Christ offers. And, and Paul knows, the Bible knows, the Holy Spirit knows that we are prone to forget, like Adam forgot, how great it is to be in Christ, to be in the Lord. And so he reminds us 216 times that we are in Christ. So let's dive into this just a little bit. Paul, Paul says there in, in uh, verse 6, again, he's said this dozens of times in various ways. Uh, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him, right? We're talking about being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase, in Christ Jesus. The questions I want to ask today, this morning, of the text, of the scriptures, and of ourselves is, one, what does it mean to be in Christ? I think we ought to know what this phrase means. What does it mean to be in Christ? Number two, when does it matter that you are in Christ? And number three, what benefits do we gain by being in Christ? So again, that's what does it mean to be in Christ? When does it matter that you are in Christ? And what benefits do we gain by being in Christ? So number one, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, all of creation, all human beings, I should say, all human beings find themselves in one of two states. Preachers love doing this. I don't know how many times I've told you you're in one of two states. They're all simultaneously true, by the way, okay? Uh, it's just different ways of phrasing the same thing. This one is true as well. You're in one of two states. All of humanity is either in Adam or in Christ. The Bible makes it crystal clear that, that we are in Adam or we are in Christ. Christianity is not a, a progressive uh, journey in the sense that that you get a little bit better, you become a little more holy, you become a little more acceptable to God, and at some point your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, and now you're acceptable to God, and this happens over a scale. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. There are many religions that teach that. Most religions teach that to one degree or another, that, that we progressively move from bad people to good people, uh, based on the works that we do, and somewhere in between, depending on what religion you're looking at, is the point where you cross over and are now acceptable to God. And that may come in this life, it may come in the next life, it may take, uh, uh, 
you know, rebirth as a different creature or whatever. This may take purgatory, right? Lots of different ways by which we pay off this debt to God. None of that found in the Bible, right? What Jesus tells us, what Paul confirms here is you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now in Christ, fully, completely in Christ, fully, completely enjoying the benefits, which we'll get to later, of being in Christ. That happens instantaneously. Now, there is progressive sanctification that happens in our life, that we will be leaving behind sin and progressing toward holiness and godliness. This happens in our life, but it doesn't have anything to do with our status with the Father. We are either in Adam or in Christ. Okay, so uh, within this this question of what does it mean to be in in Christ, there is the, the legal relationship and there are uh, what, what I'll call the, the vine and branches or, or the source of power, our source of life. Let me start there. Uh, John 15, uh, verses 5 and 6. Uh, let me find this here. Uh, I am the vine. Thank you. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. All of our life, all of our power, everything that we get as Christians comes from the, the vine. Or I, I don't know, I'm not f- as familiar with vines, with branches, as I am trees, right? Can we, can we say that the tree, you have the trunk of the tree and the branches? A little more familiar with that terminology, right? Uh, you cut a branch off from the tree, what happens? It withers and it dies. It loses its source of life. It loses its source of power, of nourishment. So it is, Jesus says, with those who are in Christ. You, we are to abide in the vine, abide in the trunk of the tree, get our nourishment, which is provided from Jesus. That's the only way that we're to sustain our life, that we're to be nourished and fed, it's the only way we're going to produce fruit, right? You chop a limb off of an apple tree and you throw it out, it withers and dies. Now, do you expect to go and pick apples off of that branch? No, certainly not. Certainly not. So fruit produced in our lives as Christians comes from abiding in the vine, abiding in the trunk. This is where we get our power. This is one sense of the phrase to be in Christ. It's to be connected to the vine. It's to be, uh, to, to, you know, Jesus says elsewhere in, in John that, that he is in us and, and we are in him. There's this, this kind of unseparable uh, connection that is made in Christ. Uh, th- that's what it means to be in him. Okay, so that's, that's one sense of this phrase that, of, of being in Christ versus being in Adam, right? When we are in Adam, we are cut off from the trunk. We are cut off from the source of nourishment. Uh, And though the branch may go on living for a short time, right? You cut off a branch, it doesn't instantly turn brown. It takes a course of time, and you might call that a lifetime here on earth, right? But ultimately, is there life in that branch? No, there's no life in that branch. So to be in Christ is to be connected to the source of life, of power, of nourishment. We should, as Christians, strive for that relationship 
uh, we should be uh, uh, building into that relationship, trying to strengthen that relationship because it's where everything good comes from. And then the, the second part, which I mentioned a moment ago, is the, the legal relationship. The legal relationship. I, I heard this phrase this week as I was studying this passage, uh, federal headship. Federal headship. Uh, th- this was a, a new one for me. Um, essentially, what, what we have is both in Adam and in Christ, we have a federal headship relationship. Uh, I, I heard it explained by uh, uh, Dr. Tim Keller this way. Uh, imagine someone who is a union negotiator. He goes in and negotiates on behalf of the union, right, for new terms of, you know, pay or vacation or benefits or any of this stuff, uh, right, terms of, of the work. The union representative goes in and is negotiating on behalf of the whole union. And Tim Keller put it this way, which I thought was great. If, you know, as a member of the union, if the union negotiator is very, very smart, you get all of the benefits of being very, very smart. His intelligence is bestowed on you, right? Because if he negotiates a great deal, you benefit as if you had negotiated that deal. That's the whole idea behind the the union contract, the union negotiation. And if the union negotiator is an idiot, uh, you are an idiot, right? You get all of the benefits or detriments of going and negotiating a terrible contract. Uh, and, and this person represents you and everyone else in the union as they go and, and negotiate this. It's a legal arrangement, a legal relationship called federal headship. We see this in other ways. In, in, in some ways, a, a marriage works on, on this, uh, in, in this way. Uh, if, if one spouse takes on a, a great debt, both uh, spouses are responsible for this debt. If one spouse is uh, you know, br- brings in a degree of wealth uh, that is shared by both spouses. Obviously, there's exceptions to that. I don't know all of those laws, but that is one sense uh, where we see the federal headship. Uh, a defense attorney would be another one, right? You hire a defense attorney uh, to defend you in court, and they are speaking on your behalf. And if you have a really smart defense attorney, you get to benefit from that. It's as if you are making a really smart defense for yourself. And if you have a really bad defense attorney, and he makes a really terrible defense for you, or no defense at all, uh, it is as if you are making a really terrible defense of yourself. This is a federal headship relationship. We have the same in Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. The relationship we have with Adam, the first man, Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman, and the sin that they ventured into is, in a sense, as representatives of all mankind and as descendants of Adam and Eve, we have all inherited this sin. We are all, before we do any action in our life, we are under the curse of sin. Our... our, Uh, can I call Adam an idiot? I think I can. Our idiot of a representative went before God and made a terrible decision. And all of mankind has suffered. In fact, all of creation has suffered as a result of that one man's sin. And, and all of creation is, is aching under the, uh, the results of that decision so long ago. But... There's a great but, right, which we focused on last week. But God uh, steps in. Um, God brings redemption through one man as well, right? J- just as Adam 
was a terrible defense attorney for us, just as Adam and the federal headship relationship we have with him earned condemnation for all of mankind. So Jesus goes in a new federal headship relationship, Jesus goes to the cross, he became sin that knew no sin, right? Jesus, now did he become a sinner? Was his heart corrupted while he was on the cross? Did, did he uh, suddenly commit sins? No, but he voluntarily took our sin upon himself. He, he as federal head, went and paid the payment, paid the penalty in full for all of those who would believe in him. And through him then, just like a good defense attorney, we now get all of the benefits. Just like a good union contract negotiator, we get all of the benefits of that which Christ has done and paid for on the cross. And when we are in Christ, what Paul is telling us here is that we are now under this federal headship. We are under Christ's provision. We are under his protection. We are under his, his grace and forgiveness. All of his righteousness becomes ours as he took, as our head, he took our uh, sinfulness, our wickedness, our rebellion, and he took it all to the cross and paid for it. So that is the relationship we have with Christ if we are indeed in him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is no other way apart from Christ to become the righteousness of God. That is only, uh, only a result of, of Jesus. And, and I want to talk briefly about holiness for a moment. Holiness, or, or you might say good works. We spend a great deal of time preaching against good works, right? We, we spend a great deal of time making sure that all of us myself included, understand that there is no amount of good works, no amount of good deeds, no amount of, of, of uh, you know, studious uh, Christian behavior that, that I can exude to make myself right with God. I cannot improve my position with God one bit by anything that I do. My good works are of zero value when it comes to... Um, when it comes to improving my relationship with God. Uh, I've told the, the story before of the, the carrot and the horse. Uh, many of you may remember. It's, it's a great story. I'll, I'll tell it briefly. Again, right, uh, there, there's a uh, fictional story, but you have a, a king or a lord of, of the land, and he's sitting in his court, and this farmer who farms this small plot of land grows carrots. Uh, and, and he happened to grow the largest carrot he'd ever grown, just perfect in shape and color and everything. He brings that to the Lord of the land, and he says, uh, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown in my entire life, and I'm not likely to ever grow another carrot this good. I want to give that to you uh, as, as my great Lord and, and overseer as a gift, right? And he gives this carrot. Uh, the, the Lord of the land is so moved by this that he says, uh, you, you clearly have proven yourself to be a great farmer, uh, you, you clearly have proven that you, you love me and care for me. Uh, I would like to give you a hundred acres or whatever to, to go and, and farm on my behalf as, as the, the royal farmer, right? And, uh, and so he goes out. It's great. That's not what he wanted. He just wanted to give a gift, but he received something so great. Well, a noble was in the court, overheard this whole exchange and thought, boy, if he got a hundred acres for a carrot, I wonder what I would get for a horse. So he goes and finds his greatest horse 
that he has, right? And he brings it to the Lord of the land, and he says, this is the best horse I've ever had. Uh, I'm not likely to ever have a, a horse this good again. I want to give it to you as a gift. And the Lord of the land says, thank you. And that's it. And seeing the confusion and the frustration in the nobleman's eyes, he says, the, the farmer, I'm sure you're confused about this, the farmer gave me a carrot. He was giving that carrot to me. It was a gift to me. You, seeing how that played out, were giving the horse to me, not really for me. You're actually giving the horse to yourself, right? You're giving the horse to yourself because of what it might get you in return. So the, the, the lesson here on, on good works is are we doing things for God uh, because of our love and appreciation for Him, or are we doing things for God because of what we get in return? Right? Because if we're doing, we could do a lot of great works. We can do a lot of great works. We can go and, and feed the poor, and we can, uh, you know, put wells in, in, in villages and countries that need fresh water, and we can do all of these things. And if it's all to earn a place, uh, to earn a good place with God that He might love and forgive. Uh, and show you mercy, then are you really giving the well to the village in Africa or are you giving it to yourself, right? Are you really feeding the hungry and the poor or are you feeding yourself? And that's the trap we fall into when we think that our good works uh, give us any uh, right standing with God. However, that being said, both this Ephesians passage goes on to talk about uh, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the uh, John 15 passage with the vine and the branches, Jesus goes on to talk about good works producing fruit. The, one of the benefits of being connected to the vine is that you would produce good fruit. That's good works. And so there is a place for works but they have nothing to do with changing our position with God. They have to do with the, the outworking of the gratitude, the outworking of this connection we have in Christ. Uh, many churches, historically, have been afraid to preach this. Uh, and, and some of you probably have grown up in a church that was afraid to preach this idea that your good works mean absolutely nothing at all. And the fear is for a preacher, the fear is that that will give you license to go and live some licentious life, that it will give you license to reject uh, God's good works and just go live any old way you please. And I actually heard it said that if, if you are preaching the gospel and no one asks the question, well, can I just go do whatever I want? If, if no one asks that question, then you're not preaching the real gospel. But that is a question that comes up. Paul addresses this question in his letters. Do we go and sin all the more that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. That's a misunderstanding. If, if that's the conclusion we come to, that if I'm saved no matter what, if my good works don't change my position with God, then I should not do any good works. I should just go do whatever seems good and whatever feels good to me. Then your relationship with Jesus is based only on fear, right? If the only thing that produces good works is the fear that God's going to condemn you, it's a relationship based on fear. It's not a relationship based on love. It's not a relationship that's based on being in Christ. And, and regretfully, churches have preached 
a false gospel for fear of people's souls. For fear that people won't engage in the good works which God has prepared beforehand for them, they shortchange the gospel and they preach what is, Paul would describe in Galatians as no gospel at all. If your works plays a role in your salvation, it's no gospel at all. You are not in Christ. You are still in Adam. You are still trying to produce this on your own. And it's tragic. It's a tragic misunderstanding. The, the song we just sang, Holy Water, which is, uh, by the way, probably my favorite worship song right now. I just love it. I love it, love it, love it. So glad that the band sang it. Uh, the, the bridge goes this way. Right? Of course, the whole song we're talking about, your forgiveness is like sweet, sweet honey on my lips, uh, like the sound of a symphony in my ears, like holy water on my skin, right? We sing that. And then we get to the bridge, and it's so great. It's so perfect. It ties in so perfectly this morning. I don't want to abuse your grace. God, I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. We repeat that over and over in the bridge. This should be the prayer of our hearts. God, I don't want to abuse your grace. I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever makes me want to change. What produces righteousness, what produces good works in us, it's God's free grace. It's being found in Christ to enjoy all the benefits of being in Christ regardless of what I do. And if we understand that, if we properly understand that, that's what makes us want to change. Not out of fear or guilt, but just out of appreciation, out of gratitude, moved by the graciousness of God. Every single thing in our life changes. I should move on. Number two, when does it matter that you are in Christ? So we, well, let, let me just jump right to it. Many would believe that it matters whether or not you are in Christ at the moment of death, right? That, that it's, it's at the moment where we die that we now uh, really need to know, am I in Adam or am I in Christ? It's at this moment when I stand before the great judge and God says, why should I let you into my heaven that we want to say because I am in Christ, and, and, and we want not to have to say, I'm in Adam. And, and some would say that you should make sure you are in Christ today because you don't know when that day will come. Right? The proverbial bus that is driving around ready to hit any of us at any moment. <laughs> it's out there. You've heard about it, right? What if I get hit by a bus today? You know, have, if, are you ready to stand before God? Are you going to be found in Christ? That would be one reason uh, to, to say you need to be in Christ today because you don't know when your last day will be. And that's true in a way. Uh, certainly, I, I do want to be found in Christ as I stand before God the Father because I, I cannot stand on any righteousness of my own. I know that to be true. But again, that's shortchanging. It's shortchanging the gospel. It's shortchanging you. It's shortchanging us. And, and churches in the past have preached this. It's been called fire insurance, right? The gospel's been called fire insurance. What, what, a, 
what a gross underselling of, of what's really going on. Uh, it, it's tragic to see the gospel is nothing more than fire insurance. We need to be in Christ. It matters that we are found to be in Christ, not only at death, but in this life. In this life. Uh, I, I should read Romans 8, 33 and, and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So in, indeed it is true that we have Christ, the great high priest, who now intercedes for us on our behalf before the Father, uh, that, that he is pleading our case for us, and, and that is true and that is good. But there's so much more than that. We want to be found in Christ for this life, for this life right now. If we look back to the story I opened with, uh, Nick Vujicic, I think I'm close that time. Uh, if, if the benefits of being in Christ only come at death, we would not see him doing or accomplishing anything in his life right now. Right? The, the reason he is so powerful, so impactful, so inspiring is because he understands the benefits of being in Christ today, right now in this life. When we look at this passage in Ephesians, we, we, see, uh, we see Paul using past tense language, right? He made us alive. We have been saved. We are raised up, seated with him. These are all past tense. This is not, uh, he will raise us up. He will seat us with Christ. He will make us alive. He will save us. If that language was used, then we might make the argument that, that to be in Christ only benefits us in the next life. But Paul doesn't do that. He uses past tense language. These things have already happened. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, all of these things are true right now today. They have already happened. He has made us alive. He has saved us. He has raised us up. He has seated us with Christ Jesus, right? All of these things are true right now, and that changes everything about our life. It changes the way we view, um, it changes the way we view our identity, right? Now, identity is, is I mean, such a hot-button issue today, right? Identity is thrown around uh, by people in our culture all over the place. Um, the, as soon as you say the word identity, something else comes to mind today that didn't come to mind five years ago, uh, right? I, identity has become this big hot-button issue, and, and culture is throwing this around as if they understand what identity is. And the creator of life, the creator of the universe, the creator of me and of you, who, who gets to define identity, has something else to say about what identity is. You know, there's, there's lots of things that can describe us or explain us, right? I'm, I'm an oldest child. Uh, I, I am male, biologically male. Uh, I don't know if that surprises you. Um, 
should not have gone there. Okay, uh, I, I, you know, my, my sister is, is the youngest child. That explains something about her. That, that tells us something about her. My wife is a middle child. That tells us something about her. Uh, I was born in Oregon. That tells us something. I was born in Eastern Oregon. That tells us even more. Um, right? So all of these things, these aspects of our personality, uh, they can help explain who we are. They can help de- to describe who we are. But they don't get to define who you are. Again, we've been sold a bill of goods. We've been, we've been told that, that any of these things, our, our gender, our, our sexuality, uh, our, our, our place in life, you, you take the, the Enneagram or, or the DISC test or any of these things, and that is who you are, right? We, we, are, we are told that that defines us, and that doesn't get to define us. That's not what God has to say. When we place our faith in Jesus, what happens to our identity? It's altered. It's changed. In fact, we have an entirely new identity. It's not that our identity is modified slightly. It's that the old has passed away, the new has come. God creates in us a new identity. We are now in Christ that defines who we are. That defines who we are. And it is a glorious, glorious thing to be. And within that, we we find all kinds of uh, variations and all kinds of gifts, right? We're going to get into the body of Christ stuff where we each have a role and a place and a significance, but all of that is under the heading of the identity in Christ. Th- this identity is, is so much different than an identity based on accomplishment or intelligence, the identity based on the grades I get, the school that I got into, the job I get, the promotion I get, the role, the the title that's on my business card. We look for identity in those things and they let us down. You lose the job, you fail the class, you don't get into the school you want, right? Or even if you do accomplish these things, You're massively successful in everything you touch, and now you can't sleep at night because you fear losing that stuff, right? You fear losing the money, losing the investments, things going south. The economy's starting to get shaky. How much sleep do you lose going, when is the next drop coming? Is this going to be like 2008 and 9 all over again? Those are indications that our identity is in the wrong place. It's in our accomplishments, our successes. It's not in Christ. In Christ, our identity is unshakable. If the stock market plummets tomorrow, sorry, Tim, if the stock market plummets tomorrow, is Christ changed at all? No. Is our position with Christ changed at all? No. Not one bit. You see, an identity based on Jesus is unshakable. It's a firm foundation. He is the rock to build our life on. That's what it is to be in Christ. And then as Christians, we work, uh, I I heard this this week, I thought this was so good, we work from our identity, not for our identity, right? We work from our identity. We are in Christ. Now we get to go do some awesome work for Jesus in all these different realms of life that he calls us to be in. We get to go do some incredible work from our identity 
and we get to stop running the race that would tell us we are working for our identity, to define ourselves, to give ourselves worth and value. We are in un unshakable in our identity in Christ. For the person with high self-esteem, we, we look at our identity in Christ and it humbles us, right? What gifts do I have except that which was given by God? What, what abilities and strengths do I have? What breath is in my lungs except that which is given by God? I cannot extend my days uh, by, by a, a single hour. It is all by and from and for God. It humbles the proud, the one with high self-esteem. Do you have low self-esteem? Again, who are you in Christ? You are valued. You are created in His image. A thing is worth what someone will pay for it, right? We've said this many times before. What did Christ pay for you? He poured out His blood. He gave His life. Do you have worth? Unbelievable worth. Value like you can't even comprehend. That's why the God of the universe gave up His life for you. It puts low self-esteem in check, which brings me to my uh, last and, and final point here. What benefits do we have as a result of being in Christ? What benefits do we have? Well, Paul has been giving us a, a pretty great list. Uh, do, do you feel faithless? Well, he tells us, verse 1 of chapter 1, that in Him we are faithful, made faithful. Verse 3, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Him. These are all in Christ statements. These are the promises. These are the benefits we gain by being in Christ. Do you feel unwanted in your life at times? Well, Paul tells us, in Christ you've been chosen in Christ, you've been adopted. You are so wanted. The God of the universe, the God who, who has all things, wants you. You're chosen. You've been adopted. Do you feel guilty? In Christ, we're forgiven. We are redeemed, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 9. Do you feel like you have no direction? Do you feel like you're flapping in the wind in your life? Are you wondering what, what you're supposed to be doing? Verse 9 tells us that we are a part of God's plan. That in Christ we have purpose. And he tells us that in Christ we can know the will of God. This is good. Do you feel alone? Verse 10 tells us that we are united in Christ. We are beneficiaries of the inheritance. Are you ever anxious or hopeless or depressed? Chapter 1 verse 12 tells us that in Christ we have hope. Verse 13, we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, we are a part of His body, the church. In chapter 2 verse 5, we are made alive. Do you feel dead in your sin? Do you feel lifeless? He makes us alive. 
together in Christ with Christ. This is, there's so many benefits. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are God's workmanship. We are created for good works in Christ Jesus. We are not worthless, but we have worth. These are some of, and it's just scratching the surface, some of the benefits of our status as those who are in Christ. It changes everything about our life. It changes our motivation. It, it changes the, the way in which we work. It, it changes so that we work out of gratitude rather than fear. It gives us greater peace, greater hope, greater rest, all in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much, and, and this idea of being in Christ is, is a monumental idea, God. I, I, I know that we can barely scratch the surface this morning, that, that we are incapable of fully wrapping our heads around this, and, and this side of heaven, God, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to fully know what it is we have. We have this incredible treasure, and, and it's like we barely know it. But God, I pray that you would enlighten us more and more each day. Help us to know how sweet it is to be in Christ. And God, for anyone in this room who finds themselves in Adam, who finds themselves outside of you and your grace and your mercy, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself right now. God, would you stir in their hearts a desire to be found in Christ. God, would you move them to pray and receive you as Lord and Savior, to put uh, themselves in, in the path of your grace right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to go to a time of communion. I want to invite uh, you out of your seats. Go ahead and come up. There's